Woodstock, Deadheads, The Village, Kate Ashbury, Counterculture, Women's Lib, Karma, Enlightenment. <laughs> sound familiar or sound foreign? That's okay. Join us, the two old bogey yogis, as we reminisce, discuss our spiritual paths, and explore all things yoga, meditation, and more. Your hosts each week are Swami Yashokananda and Reverend Prem, who between us have nearly a hundred years of living La Vida Integral Yoga. And that's what makes us the two, two old bogey yogis. <laughs> Welcome to this episode where we'll continue to talk about and reflect on the yamas, the first limb of Patanjali's classic yoga contained in the Yoga Sutras. In a recent episode, we gave an overview of the yamas and niyamas. These are the foundational rung on the ladder of this system. Patanjali's system is a methodology that gives us, well, a method to reach the goal of yoga, the ability to rest in our own true nature. In order to progress in yoga, we need a solid foundation. And that's where the ethical precepts come into play. Yama, the abstinences, and Niyama, the observances. Think of them like yoga's 10 commandments. So we're looking at Yama in Sutra 2.30, that's book two, Sutra 30. Yama consists of nonviolence, truthfulness, non-stealing, continence, and non-greed. In a prior episode, we did a deep dive into nonviolence or ahimsa. Today we'll begin with the second yama, satya or truthfulness. Okay, so we are at Sutra 236. Good. The sutra reads from Swami Satchidananda's translation and commentary, to one established in truthfulness, actions and their results become subservient. Uh, actions and their results become subservient. What does that mean? <laughs> that's, <laughs> a good, that's a good question. Edwin Bryant, who I often quote, who has written one of the most scholarly and comprehensive texts on the sutras, where he brings in some of the original commentators from way back in like the time of Vyasa. He noted that these yamas and niyamas, when they're listed, and then there's this sort of like second part of it that Patanjali's saying, yeah, truthfulness is something to become established in. Why? Okay, so maybe he wants to give us a little encouragement. If you do this, then this will happen. The second part of these sutras where it seems like there's a little kind of Easter egg gift, you know, right. it's, it's to encourage the student. If you do this, here's the good things that will happen, right? Mm -hmm. And then he was also saying, okay, so what is this actions and their results become subservient? So he's saying, well, maybe truthfulness leads to success on the path, in business, all your interactions in life. And he did say that one of the traditional commentators said, people will trust you. They will know <laughs> you're a person of truth. Yeah, yeah. Right? And then if people trust you, then what's going to happen? You're going to be successful in your life. I agree with Dr. Bryant that this second part is an enticement to get involved with these yamas. 
But I also think that Patanjali was a straight shooter. I don't think he's one to exaggerate very much. So I think he's really saying something here. The way I'm inclined to interpret it is that if you get established in truthfulness, whatever comes out of your mouth and whatever you do is the truth. Wait a minute. <laughs> how, how did you just like almost literally quote Gurudev's commentary? <laughs> oh, okay. That's what Gurudev says. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. He okay. says, if you are always truthful, yeah. no lie comes to your mouth, a time will come when all you say will come true. So when those people bless you, you are blessed. <laughs> and and uh, you should run for the hills if, you, if they might curse you because you will be <laughs> cursed. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But they say somehow is aligned with the whole. Yeah. And the whole responds, however they express themselves, the whole is going to put its stamp of approval on that. We could almost argue that that's kind of the science. Okay, I'm using that term loosely, but behind mm -hmm. when they say that a blessing from a realized master is not just like a nice little pat on the back or a well wish. It's actually a transmission, a shakti pot in a sense that that's going to come to fruition in your life. Now, yeah. I don't know if you noticed this. I felt this way when I received my name from Gurudev. Hmm. I mean, I was like, huh? <laughs> I was the same way. Yeah. <laughs> I like, I was the least sort of tuned divine love as an offering and I'm like, yeah, that sounds nice. I don't really relate to it. I liked like, I like like something very esoteric, liberation. Mukti or something. Yeah. yeah <laughs> I, uh, <laughs> <laughs> but yet I just saw that over time, something really was shifting within me and my heart was just opening and opening and opening in a way that I never experienced before and that it continued. And over the many years, I've seen the blossoming of really deep compassion and agape love and all these qualities that I wonder if they would have blossomed without that blessing from my guru in the form of that name, which became almost like a mantra, to say nothing about our mantra. Yeah, I do think the, the receiving of a name from a master is that type of a boon, because they're so aligned with the truth. They're giving you something that's going to manifest. And what about your name? Well, you didn't relate to it at first. <laughs> and what was your experience? Yeah, I, because I was a brother of Akon in my pre-monastic days. Yeah, brother Vivekan. Discrimination. I can cut through the illusion and see the reality. Did you like that name? I did, but uh, sometimes good. Well, he'd see me, he'd poke me in the belly and say, Andy Viveka yet? I said, uh, <laughs> not so much, good. <laughs> oh my gosh. He said, well, Viveka comes before Varagya. First, you have to have discrimination and then you can start letting go of things. So okay. work on the Viveka. Uh-huh. When it came time to get my sannyas name, I thought I'd be Swami Vivekananda, the great Swami Vivekananda, the oh. Ramakrishna disciple. And were you excited about that? I was pretty excited about coming to Swami Vivekananda, but a few people before me got the name Swami Vivekananda. And I got, uh-oh. <laughs> <laughs> That's my name. I'm a Vivekan. <laughs> and then Ashokananda, I said, what? I never heard of that. That's pretty lame stuff. <laughs> <laughs>
And tell us the meaning and what yeah. you'd have said. I mean, there's two ways to interpret it, but I, I interpret it as a shuk is worry or grief or sorrow. Ashoka means free from. And I am someone who's a little bit tends toward the skittish side and easily apt to get anxious. So I, it turned out to be a perfect name for me. The other way is uh, there was a great king in India, Ashoka, who became a Buddhist. He was a warrior king and he defeated all the neighboring kingdoms. But somewhere along the way, he converted to Buddhism and changed his ways. And Gurudev once did say to me, you know, when, uh, when I was feeling down about myself, he says, you're the king in your own area. There's no other... Ashokananda than you. You're the king. So <laughs> I can relate to it both ways. But mostly I, I use my name also, as like you say, as a kind of mantra to remember whenever I, that feeling starts to tighten me up, I start to contract Ashokananda, Ashokananda, mm. bliss of being free from worry. That's so beautiful. <laughs> yeah, I yeah. love that. Yeah. But, you know, I was just thinking yesterday, I got busy and I lost some of my evening practices. So I just started getting back to them and it feels so good. But the thing that I realized is that in the end, all this practice is for you to be open to the main practice, which is prem, which is love. If you don't have that, you can be doing all the meditation pranayama. I don't think you're going to move very far. It has to translate into this divine love. Well, for each person, I'm, I'm trying to understand what that love is because it's yeah. not that it's not I love you. It's right. something it's something different than I love you. It has something to do with seeing the best, the highest part of each person. It has something to do with not getting caught in their humanness and their frailties. So that even people who are you considered bad people, people you want to stay away from, you can still feel love for. Or it's not even that you feel love, that love passes through you. And I have seen it in, in you. You have been blessed with a name that has, you've grown into more and more. And I see how I'm growing into my name. So I do think that one establishing truth if they give you a name, they see something in you, and you start, over time, you'll start to embody that. That's the sati in them. Yeah, that's beautiful. When you were talking about that quality of prem, or actually, it's supposed to be pronounced prem, but it's so, prem. it's hard for people. So that's why I usually will say prem. It's just, okay. I don't know, for some reason, for Americans, easier to say. But that quality actually ties into satya very deeply because mm. what you were sharing about trying to feel love and sort of in a sense equal vision for everyone is hopefully our practice the fruition of yoga resting on our true nature means we recognize the true nature of everyone else which is identical to ours so we are all satchit ananda you're all Brahman, the truth of being, consciousness or awareness, and the bliss that comes from that. Essence nature is pure consciousness, and that is in every living being exactly the same. Now, to the extent that it expresses in an individual is to the extent of their own level of awakening. And so when we see people doing bad things, then with a spiritual eye, we can say they're good people who just have forgotten who they are, have not awakened to a level where they can recognize and be in alignment mm -hmm. with their true nature. Yeah, I like that the word evil and the word veil are the same letters. And live. <laughs> yeah, live. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah so. But it's that's true. Veil. It's so true. They're just they just have a thicker veil. That's all. 
same essence nature, thicker veil. I mean, that's according to the real classic non-dual traditions, the philosophy, which is at the heart of integral yoga. I'm realizing more and more that the philosophy of integral yoga is a non-dual, we are all one, we are pure consciousness, cosmic consciousness, like Gurudev used to always say, see yourself as that divine, see the divine in one another. There is no difference between you and the divine. You are that spark of the divine. The only thing is that spark hasn't fully ignited. The veil is still too dense for you to see yourself. Didn't he used to always say that beatitude? He would often reword the beatitudes in a way to illuminate them from a yogic teaching standpoint. Right. Yeah. Uh, how's it go? Um, love your neighbor as yourself. Yeah. In other words, see yourself, see that same self in the neighbor and love that same self in the neighbor. Yeah. yeah. That's a great example of that. Yeah. Yeah. And that, that Dwightic approach. Yeah. Yeah. And that I think is the foundational philosophy of integral yoga. And then I think the practice that you were alluding to the methodology is what we find in the yoga sutras. I think it's really wonderful how you you just illustrated how satya and prem, how truthfulness and truth and love are so intertwined. Yeah. Yeah. I never thought of it that way so in such a clear way. Edwin Bryan said, these are like living expressions of yeah the truth yeah yeah and, and so they're not like a book like pick up a, a storybook a novel or even a biography to read these are revealed teachings from sages and they're layered so you're in this relationship with this like living mm. sage like text mm. yeah. that you can keep unpacking and it keeps revealing. These are like revelatory. That's what I feel. They're like these, ooh, it's so alchemic and mystical. I love that. I know, yeah. I'm I'm finding that from my study of the Bhagavad Gita, the same. Yeah. That, chills, I, yeah, yeah. I, I wanted to ask you about that in the yeah. Gita because in the Living Gita, which Gurudev also did a translation and commentary of this other very foundational yoga text, the Bhagavad Gita. And in chapter 17, sloka 15, it says, these are the disciplines of speech, speaking truthfully, pleasantly, and kindly with words that do not excite others and reading scripture, svadhyaya. Mm. And then his commentary, next is the truth, which is quite difficult to define because the effect of our words are as important as the content. Mm, interesting. Yeah. And sometimes by speaking the literal truth, he says, we might hurt somebody. We shouldn't hurt anybody. And at the same time, we don't want to say something untrue, just avoid hurting somebody. Still, a truth that brings harm is worse than an untruth that brings some good. And Gurudev tells a story. Do you remember the story of the hermit? This is in the, the Living Gita. Okay. Once there was a Swami living in a small hermitage in a dense forest. He had a hut by the riverside and was doing his practices by himself in the secluded spot. One afternoon, he saw a beautiful girl bedecked with jewels, crying out and running toward him. 
Swami, please help me. A horrible fellow is chasing me. He wants to steal my jewels. Please let me hide somewhere. She didn't even wait for his answer. She ran into his hut and hid in a corner. Within a few minutes, a wild, demonic-looking man with a dagger in his hand arrived on the scene shouting, Hey, did you see a girl here? Now the Swami's a yogi, right? He's supposed to be sattvic and follow all the precepts. Satya, 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 right? He should always tell the truth, shouldn't he? Well, here's what he said. What? You are looking for a girl? What did she look like? She was very beautiful and wearing a lot of jewels. My son, don't you know this is a hermitage? And I am a hermit. This is no place for girls. Can't you see that? So, you didn't see her. Well, that's what I'm asking you. Sir, what would she do here? <laughs> All right. And the criminal ran off. Now, this, this is Gurudev's saying. The Swami didn't literally say, hey, she's not here, mm -hmm. right? He put it in a different way. But even if he had said, I didn't see her, there would be nothing wrong in it. It was a lie. But it would have saved three lives. And when you think about it, wait a minute, what do you mean it would have saved three lives? Her life, his life, the Swami, and the robber's life too. If the Swami had told the truth literally, and even if the girl had surrendered her jewels, there would have been two witnesses to the crime. So the thief wouldn't have left any witnesses. So he would have disposed of the girl and the Swami. Then he would have run off with the jewels. But certainly the police in time would have caught him. The judge would have sentenced him to death for killing two people. So that means all three would have lost their lives because the Swami spoke the truth. And then Gurudev says, the literal truth is not always the best. Speech should be applied properly. When the Swami said, I haven't seen anybody, nobody was hurt by that. And everybody was saved. If you lie, it should not adversely affect anybody. Otherwise, it's just an excuse to lie. So do you think that's the explanation for like a white lie or not telling somebody something to sort of spare their feelings? Yeah. I mean, he touches it at the end when he says, you know, don't look for excuses to make yourself comfortable by lying. Mm. Uh, it's it's a slippery slope, this thing, white lies, you know. Yeah. Uh, like we're saying, these teachings are, are more nuanced than a simplistic mind might see. I think that, you know, when we open up truth to not always being factual, then you really have to look at the motive for not being factual. You have to yeah. be so, you really have to see that I'm doing some good action here and I'm adhering to that first principle of Ahimsa as the priority. I don't know much about horoscopes, but I, I'm a Scorpio. So we tend to be secretive. So I just see like if I'm, if I'm kind of hiding something, if I don't want someone to see something, what, what, what is it that I'm ashamed of? What is it that I don't want to re be revealed about me? To me, that it's a break in satya. I'm trying to portray a certain image of myself and not let someone see something that would harm that esteemed image of myself. But is it uh, the harm to the esteemed image because of how it would affect the other person's relationship and maybe respect for you and teachings you present or is it a more subtle 
thing that it's more your concern for your own self-image, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. That's a very subtle difference. Uh, and I can sometimes make the excuse of, well, it's good for them to see me at a higher level so that I can have some good impact on them. But I, I'm trying not to live that way. This is who I am. I'm not holier than you. I'm not trying to portray myself as holier than I am. So if I don't want you to see me eating something or watching something, uh, uh, why am I doing it then? Beautiful. Yeah. Uh, so are you that, saying in a sense, it almost sounds like, and please, if I'm getting this wrong or there's a, a distinction I'm missing, point it out, please. Because are you equating in a sense, truthfulness and transparency? <laughs> or is tr transparency an aspect of truthfulness? It sounds like I'm saying that, yeah, that uh, what you see is what you get. There's something beautiful about someone not putting on any airs, particularly a spiritual seeker. They're trying to live up to something. They can't always live up to it. So they have to hide. A part of their lives gets hidden. That hidden part feels dirty in some ways. It feels like a break in satya. It's not truthful. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I think you have to live with some tension. You have some sh shoka, you know, you have some worry that, uh-oh, <laughs> what if someone's walked in on me now? <laughs> yeah, yeah, that doesn't feel very good. But I just imagine that, first of all, being a sannyasi, a swami, a monk, okay, being a senior monk, being the president of an integral yoga institute, the stature that you have, that must be a lot of pressure. You're dealing with your own internal pressure, right? And trying to be as truthful as you can with yourself. And then the pressure and expectations and projections of other people. I mean, how do you deal with that? Yeah, the first 20 years or so of Sanya's life of being a Swami, I dealt with it by retreating into my Scorpio tendencies, very secretive and portraying an image that people wanted to see of a Swami. Mm. I think I went to the other extreme once that once I just saw the falsity of that, once I started feeling that it's better to be what I am and to try to meet my own expectation of what a Swami should be or what other people expect. It's such a tense way to live. I think I probably went to another extreme. Okay, what did that look like? <laughs> <laughs> Your extremes are pretty funny to me. Like, here's my extreme. I watch movies. <laughs> Maybe once a week. <laughs> Yeah, just anything that I, I don't want to give specific examples, but anything that I would have a tendency to hide, I would train my mind to do openly. Oh, okay. That takes a lot of chutzpah yeah. <laughs> to do that. And then I said, you know what? You don't have to do everything openly. You could occasionally close the door. Close the bathroom door? <laughs> yeah, yeah, close the bathroom door. <laughs> you don't have to be that transparent, you know? But some transparencies don't smell that good. <laughs> <laughs> but I do think that this idea of living an authentic life is really a, an important part of satya. It's something that I've tried to take on more. And I just see, as I try to take it on more, I see I've got a ways to go. I think I'm kind of there. And then I recognize, no, you're not there. You, you can be more honest with yourself and with others. I mean, because I, I, I think is I have so many things I can be proud of about myself. Yeah. I think if I didn't have things to be proud of, then, uh, then the things I'm ashamed of would really I couldn't I couldn't bear revealing. But if <laughs> I have, but if I have so much to be proud of, then all right, I'm not that proud of this part. It's where I'm at. Maybe one day this also will fall away. That's really an interesting point you're making. So you're sort of painting a picture of 
you need some level of self-esteem maybe to be able to live more transparently without the ego feeling completely decimated all the time. That's really, I hadn't thought of it that way, but that's, that's exactly it. To reveal who you are, you have to feel pretty good about yourself. Yeah. Uh, you have to feel some confidence in yourself. Otherwise, they're going to they're gonna crush me. Yeah. Or I'm going to crush myself. I can't be who I am. You have to feel, yes, I can be who I am because I have some essence that's coming through more and more. I'm not totally there yet, but a part of getting there is being what I am now. That is so beautiful. Yeah, yeah. Amazing. And it really does shine a light on that when we look at other people and wonder why are they not really living as honestly as you would want or expect. Mm -hmm. And maybe it really has to do with self-esteem issues. Yeah, and I do see that, you know, as someone who lives in an ashram with other people, the more I can just be what I am, it breathes a, a breath of fresh air to everyone here. Oh, that's incredible. It's so important for an ashram not to get weird by everyone having this secretive life behind closed doors. You'll never get close to people that way. You'll never really will have serious relationships. So I see that it is a good karma yoga to not pretend. Yeah, for your own self and to model that to other people as a way of being in relationship with yourself and then with others. I mean, then there's this issue of, you know, being a Swami, people hold you in high regard. I think rightfully so. There's so few Swamis. I think it's it deserved respect. Uh, I'm not saying this egoistically, but it's, it's a, a very dedicated existence. As they create more distance between you and them, there is some usefulness in humanizing yourself to narrow that distance. No, no, no. Don't put me there and you're here, you know. I mean, you can go too far with that. I try to watch that line where I don't have to reveal everything about myself if I'm mentoring somebody. Uh, I, they don't have to know everything about my life story. But I think some recognition that we're not that far apart. I'm not that elevated and you're so low. And then we can have a real discussion. I can listen to you with respect. I can trust that you are smart enough to figure things out. I can just probe, you know, nudge you in the right direction. But if I'm the super Swami, then I have to fix you, save you. <laughs> you know? yeah. 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 It's so true. And also the connection will not have that quality of real, well, satya, honesty, and relatability. Carl Rogers, the humanistic psychologist who I just yeah. love, mm. and he talked about the importance of genuineness in a therapeutic mm. relationship. Mm. If you don't have like genuineness, positive regard for the other person you're talking with, and real empathy, respect, nothing is going to go on there in that relationship. He was all about the building of a therapeutic relationship. And in many ways, that's also, I feel, a model for building healthy interpersonal relationships. I like this idea of Carl Rogers. Of you, you treat the person with respect and from their level, and then you see where to go from there, uh, not to write anyone off. Also, I like this saying that the Buddhists have of something being real but not true. <laughs> it's helped me so much because it's a beautiful way to be in relationship with yourself and someone else to where there's nothing I think worse than invalidating someone's feelings. It's fine that maybe how they feel, how they see things is not quite accurate. You can still validate their feelings. Right. And say, oh, I really hear how painful that is for you. Once you validate what they're experiencing as something 
yes, real for them, there might be an opening to introduce that how they're seeing what is leading to that painful situation may not be true. Mm. So it's real how they're experiencing it. It's just not true what the cause is. That's so beautiful to to tie that into this topic of, of satya. We can say that it's true for them at the moment, even though it's not real. And you have to start with their truth. Yeah, yeah because if you don't, you yeah. then they just feel terrible. And like yeah, you're yeah. just being another non-supportive, not mm. really listening to them person. Yeah. yeah. It doesn't help. It doesn't help. Yeah. First step is to validate the reality as true for them, right? Right. <laughs> and now we can see if there's a way to get to the, the ultimate truth, higher truth. Yeah, yeah the yeah, higher yeah. truth, maybe yeah. the broader truth. Yeah, yeah. Oh, this person did da 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 da, da. Yeah, that would feel terrible. I'm <laughs> yeah, sorry yeah. that you're going through that. And yeah, yeah, I would feel terrible if that happened yeah. to me. <laughs> and then just sort of see where the person wants to go. Sometimes there's the open, they'll say, I wish I could see this in a different way. Or mm. like, I love how you always say, well, what is that other person's intentions? You know, mm. why did they do that? Or why might they have said such and such? Can I reframe this for myself in some way? I think one of the highest things you can do is not immediately jump to malintent. We should recognize we actually may not know all the motives behind something. That sometimes can edge us toward a higher truth. Once we assume they wanted to hurt us, there's no place to go from there, basically. Uh, exactly. Yeah. Oh, my yeah. gosh. <laughs> It's so profound. There really is. You, you've sort of come to the end of the road. Yeah. You know? They wanted to hurt me. That's the end of the road. Yeah. End of the road. So what am I going to do? I either put a stiff upper lip and just sort of go through whatever I have to go through with that person because I feel like I have to do that, which is misery. Or, misery. or I say, never speaking to that person again, which you then cut that person off entirely in your life. All of these are not skillful means for dealing with something. They Because they bring more suffering to ourselves. They bring suffering to other people. It's not going to get us anywhere, really. Yeah, yeah. There are people who intentionally hurt us. I think it's not very frequent and we should be cognizant of that. That could happen, but that's a hypothesis. I wouldn't make it a fact, yeah. Yeah. And also, you know, that brings us back to what we we're talking about in another episode, when we we're talking about the four locks and keys, right? If someone if there is someone in the category of sort of intentionally trying to harm, then the remedy is disregard for that person, you can still bring in this whole idea of satya and ahimsa. So to be in a nonviolent, truthful inner relationship with that person, you have to have, you don't have to continue an outer relationship, right? You don't have to engage with the person, but you can still regard the person. And I almost like to say you could disregard them on the external, meaning I don't have to have an external relationship, but on right. the internal I can still trust that person has the same essence nature as I do. That is satya. And that is so beautifully nonviolent because then I don't have to harbor angry, negative, 
resentful, whatever sort of negative attributes that I want to pile on that person, I don't need to do that then. And the main thing is we're doing ourselves a favor. Right. You know, I, I don't think Patanjali was so much concerned about the social aspect of things, but no. how is this writing off this person or seeing them a certain negative way? How is it affecting my mind? How is it creating virtues in my mind? Exactly. Uh, yeah. If I can find a way to keep my mind at peace, even in this situation, then I'm making good spiritual headway. It's not so much we're doing the person a favor by not harboring negative feeling towards them. We're helping our mind to achieve Chittavritin Rhoda, to quiet the mind. Yeah. And to help our mind be more sattvic, which all yeah. of these yamas and niyamas are really mm -hmm. going to cultivate sattva. And also it's like what Gurudev said, you get angry with someone it's like drinking poison, <laughs> right, yeah. thinking the other person is going to die. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. We poison ourselves by not following the yamas and niyamas, thinking, oh, well, it's all about the other person. They did this and that to me, or whatever we tell ourselves to make ourselves feel better. Yeah, I like that. The yamas and niyamas are stopping poisoning ourselves. Yeah. We're always poisoning ourselves uh, from morning till night. If we can stop doing that, then what's beneath all that come to the surface. I really like what you said about Patanjali isn't really so focused on the social aspect. And you are so spot on because the more I've been studying the sutras and the history around mm. Patanjali in that time frame, I'm realizing that people don't have to be Brahmins and priests to realize the highest truth. Yet, what I didn't realize before is still Patanjali's audience was primarily renunciates, monks, forest dwellers. Well, maybe some were Brahmins, but sort of renounced from mm -hmm. all of that and wandering ascetics. But that's who his audience was, because if you really look at the system and the methodology, it's very rigorous. Mm. Edwin Bryant will talk about Patanjali's not talking about, OK, you're doing yoga in the morning for 20 minutes, maybe, <laughs> yeah. maybe yeah. before you're going to bed. This yeah. is like 24 seven practice. Yeah. Yeah. Whoa. And he said, if you want to live a more worldly householder life, then read the Gita. That's the audience for the Gita. Mm. Interesting. But as a monk, I'm also getting so much from the Gita, but I understand what Dr. Bryan's saying. The Gita is encouraging you to stay where you are. Right. And, Don't renounce your life. Yeah, yeah. You know, be in your life. And yeah. the karma yoga part of it, bring these practices into your daily life, into your householder life with your family and apply all these teachings, right? Yeah, Arjun even suggested to Krishna, maybe I could become a Swami and, and leave this war. And Krishna said, no, no, your own nature won't allow you to do that. You'll, you'll suffer more. It's beautiful because in a way, I guess, especially how yoga and some of these traditions came up in the world, even Advaita Vedanta for some, to some extent, if you think about Sri Shankaracharya, he organized the different monastic sects within Hinduism. Th these teachings were really all geared for people who were not in the world. These are transcendental teaching. These are the moksha traditions where you're trying to get liberated from this material world. Whereas if you really go to the deepest philosophical traditions that Gurudev was steeped in, the Shaiva tradition, it was all about not one class is better than the other. 
everything is equal. Everyone is one. It's a universality. And it's all about bringing those transcendental experiences and realizations back into your regular day-to-day life, the proverbial chop, (laughs) for enlightenment chop would carry water after enlightenment chop would carry. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think, you know, uh, as we start to wrap up this topic, what's coming to me, and maybe also from, since we brought up the Bhagavad Gita, that a big aspect of satya is to acknowledge how social pressures and expectations may veer you off your swadharma, your natural expression, the way that you were made to express yourself in this world. So you lose touch with that truth. And I think a large part of the spiritual path is to not allow yourself to be pulled away because you want to fit into the herd from how you're meant to express yourself. And that's why Krishna puts it so strongly that you need to find your source for Dharma and you need to stick to it. You're not going to be happy otherwise. You, you, were, you weren't made to do something else. You were made for this. Be truthful about that. Hold That's to that. So beautiful. Can you say a little bit about Swadharma? There's two terms. One is Swabhava and the other is Swadharma. Swabhava is, Krishna talks about Swabhava as something innate, probably from past lifetimes. You've developed certain qualities that make up a a deep core aspect of who you are, maybe deeper than personality level, because even if you die, that Swabhava will go with you. Mm. And And the way that specific expression of the whole, you can say, that that innate sense of self expresses itself as your swadharma, how the whole wants to use you in this birth, both for your own spiritual unfoldment and for your the part you play in the unfolding universal drama. I mean, it was it was weird for me, you know, uh, two atheist parents, I drop out of college, I don't know exactly what I'm doing, you know, uh, I, yeah. I join an ashram, I get a, a different name, something was pulling me in a direction away from the herd that if I didn't have the courage to to listen to that, I don't know where I'd be now. I wouldn't be happy. So that's what you would call your swadharma. I brought it by atheists. So I'm an atheist. Why would I believe in God? Why would I have any spiritual inclination at all? But once the spiritual inclination started to awaken on their own, then I, I had to pay attention. Yeah. I mean, even the Buddha, he was raised in such an uh, enclosed society. It wasn't until he... He went out one day and said, oh, I didn't realize all this stuff. <laughs> People get sick. People die. Yeah, yeah. People are hungry. Uh, his parents particularly shielded him, his <laughs> father particularly, because there was some horoscope reading, I think, that said your son will one day leave and want to become a renunciate and wander the forest. And his father was like horrified at the idea. Mm. So sheltered him and kept him enclosed. Mm implying him with every thing that anyone would ever lust for. And one day, (laughs) Siddhartha just snuck out of the palace and then he saw a dead body. He's like, why isn't the person moving? Oh, he died. What's death? All of this he had been sheltered from. And just that, like you say, it awakened something in him and he had to know and he had to know what is the remedy for all this suffering that he saw when he left the palace yeah yeah that first person who saw that in the buddha uh he understood the swadharma of the buddha and the parents tried to override it uh, yeah at some point in everybody's journey you can't override it anymore i think we're very privileged today i mean not everybody obviously is privileged to be able to follow their swadharma that's so true. Yeah. 
Yeah, truthfulness is is a subtle topic. Each of us should should meditate on it. How can I live in a more truthful, authentic way? Or what ways am I not honest with myself and others and with the divine? I think this one yama can take us very far if we take it to heart and see how we can keep growing in satya. Beautiful. Mm -hmm. I think that's a perfect way to end this Uh episode. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed the podcast and will join us again for next week's episode. Please do follow and subscribe to the podcast via SoundCloud, iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, Pandora, and other apps. For more information about everything Integral Yoga, you can go to IntegralYoga.org. Om Shanti.